Well, tonight's lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian Jr., known to his many, many friends, I'm sure a number of whom are here tonight, um, known to his many friends as Punky. Punky Christian's service to his country as a decorated combat veteran of World War II and to his community, Richmond and Virginia, as a business executive and a civic leader, well, that, that history is well known. Twice wounded in Normandy, which makes tonight's topic especially appropriate, I think, Punky returned home and helped shape the city and the state. His service to the VHS included some of the most critical years of our history as a trustee, a board president, and an honorary vice chairman. He gave leadership, energy, generosity, and as we say every year, his own special cantankerous brand of persistence. All of these qualities left a mark on the VHS that is still evident today. He co-chaired our first capital campaign. We've had a few since then, but the first one, the Fifth Century Fund, which really did redefine the VHS and serve as a catalyst for more than two decades of growth and achievement that we have been able to enjoy around here. So we celebrate Punky with this lecture, named in his honor, and as we always do, we express our gratitude. Our gratitude to his wife Peggy and to their children for sharing him with the extended family that he built here at the VHS. All of us who knew him and had the fortune to know him will remember him forever with great affection. And we are fortunate to have Peggy here tonight and all three of her children, Susan, Robin, and Stuart, along with uh, a granddaughter, Ashby, and a daughter-in-law, Mario. Um, so I'd like to ask the Christian family to rise at this point and all of us give them a round of applause. And finally, before I introduce our speaker, um, it's been our custom the last number of years when we've been covering World War II topics with the Christian lecture um, to ask if there are any World War II veterans with us in the audience tonight. And if they are here and would be willing to be recognized, I would ask them to stand or put their hands up and let us all give them a round of applause. I think our gratitude should be clear, but let me say it is an honor to have you with us tonight. On to tonight's program. On June 6th, 1944, 19 boys from rural Bedford, Virginia, died in the first bloody minutes of D-Day. They were part of Company A of the 116th Regiment of the 29th Division and among the first wave of American soldiers to hit the beaches at Normandy. Later in the campaign, three more boys from this small Virginia community died of gunshot wounds. 22 sons of Bedford lost, a harrowing toll, and one that the families of Bedford will never forget. Well, tonight's speaker will tell the true and intimate story of these men and their friends and families they left behind. The story of one small American town that went to war and died on Omaha Beach. Alex Kershaw, an honorary colonel in the 116th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Division, 
is the widely acclaimed author of several best-selling books about World War II, including tonight's topic, The Bedford Boys, One American Town's Ultimate D-Day Sacrifice, but also The Longest Winter, The Battle of the Bulge, and the epic story of World War II's most decorated platoon, and most recently, Avenue of Spies, a true story of terror, espionage, and one American family's heroic resistance in Nazi-occupied Paris. After the lecture, Alex will be more than happy to sign copies of both The Bedford Boys and Avenue of Spies, which are available up in our museum shop. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Alex Kershaw, who will speak to us on The Bedford Boys. Can you hear me okay? I have a very strange, limey accent. Um, I, I, I apologize for that. Um, <clears throat> uh, I wanted to start by saying thank you all for being here. Um, I'm flattered and honored that so many of you would turn out to uh, listen to me. Um, and thank you for the uh, Historical Society. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I walked along Omaha Beach for the first time uh, in 2001, um, June the 6th, 2001, um, not long, obviously, before September the 11th. And I was researching a book about a photographer called Robert Kappa, the greatest uh, combat photographer of the 20th century. And his glory hour, literally it was one hour, was spent on Easy Red sector of Omaha Beach at 6.30 a.m. on June the 6th, 1944. And I thought I had to go back to where he photographed, uh, where he took the most evocative images of D-Day, the most important day, I believe, of the 20th century. And while I was walking along that beautiful golden arc of sand, I noticed at the far western end, closest to America, a giant concrete block. And I thought to myself, what is a large concrete block doing uh, on this beach, and I discovered that it was the National Guard Memorial. And I thought to myself, why is there a National Guard Memorial on Omaha Beach? Um, and I did some research, and I discovered that the first wave the, in the most critical assault, I would argue, as a European, by uh, upbringing, of World War II, was led by weekend warriors, National Guardsmen who landed in the most bloody spot you could possibly find yourself in Europe during World War II, Omaha Beach. I did some research and then I discovered that among a National Guard company, Company A of the 116th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Infantry Division, out of the 180 men who landed in the first wave at 6.32 a.m. exactly, 34 of those men came from a community called Bedford, Virginia. Of those 34, 19 were killed in a matter of four or five minutes on a sector called Dog Green, one of eight sectors on Omaha Beach. I was fascinated by this and I actually couldn't believe that no one had told this story. Um, actually, I wrote a book proposal. I sent it to 12 publishers um, this is in the summer of 2001, and all of them 
rejected it. Um, probably for a very good reason. Why, would, why the hell would we get a limey to write this story about uh, a limey with a chip on both shoulders? Um, why would we get him to, why would we publish a book by an Englishman about a very tragic loss, which is hardly inspiring? And then, of course, 9-11 occurred, and the New York Times wrote stories about a community that could remember a similar tragic loss, similar to what had happened in New York. And three publishers were almost within days on the phone wanting to talk to me about this, this narrative. At the end of my spiel, um, uh, I would like to take as many questions as you guys feel like asking, because I find that that's the best way to really get into the emotional core of this story. But before I do that, I want to take you through what I feel are evocative images. Um, and you must forgive me um, if I go on too long, throw something at me. But also, if I become a little bit emotional, please tell me to grow up and uh, grow up here. Um, the, uh, this is actually a, <clears throat> a photograph taken um, before the war. It's uh, 1939, and this shows you Company A, 116th, 29th Infantry Division, blue and greys, um, and the red circles are men from this photograph taken in 1939 who died on Omaha Beach. The orange circles are some of the characters that I'm going to uh, talk about. Um, company A was a National Guard unit. Most of the people that belonged to Company A um, joined in the late 30s, and they joined for two reasons. They joined because, yes, they were patriotic, but also because they were poor. And when they practiced drill once a week with the National Guard unit in the Bedford Armory, they received pay. And uh, these guys were from a poor rural community in Virginia where every dollar mattered. It actually, belonging to the National Guard unit there uh, meant that they could help their families get by. Let's not forget that the Depression in rural America didn't end until 1941-42 with the entry of America into World War II. Um, John Wilkes here, um, Betty Wilkes, his, uh, this is the, a photograph taken on their honeymoon in 1942, April 1942. Betty um, sadly passed away last year. Uh, she was a, a really, really beautiful spirit, a, a wonderful lady. She helped me enormously with my research. They were madly in love, and John here, um, born in Bedford, um, was Company A's Master Sergeant on D-Day. He was a, a very tough uh, disciplinarian. Um, many of the veterans who served in Company A um, testified later on that he was not a guy that you wanted to cross at all. I should say that um, he was killed on Omaha Beach. Uh, he was one of the few people seen to be firing back at the Germans. He was uh, seen, last seen kneeling firing a, an M1 rifle and was shot through the uh, center of his forehead. The reason why he was shot through the center of his forehead was because any, any person at 6.30 to 7 o'clock a.m. on Dog Green Sector of Omaha Beach that wasn't lying wounded or dead, actually was engaging in combat, was a target for snipers. And the snipers picked them off methodically. 
Um, I unashamedly will say that this is my favorite photograph from World War II. Um, I love this photograph for many reasons. It's the last photograph taken of the Bedford boys with their wives and girlfriends. It's taken in Florida um, in late September 1942. You'll see, um, I'll try and work this technology. You'll see here, there's Betty and there's John. Uh, down here you have Elaine Kofi and Bedford Hoback. Bedford was uh, one of, uh, had a brother, Raymond, Bedford and Raymond Hoback. I'll talk about them later. Um, four sets of brothers of those 34 men who landed on Omaha Beach. Um, I was told by Betty that there were more cousins in Company A from Bedford than she could count. Um, the company commander, Taylor Fellers, was from Bedford. Um, three of the five officers in Company A were from Bedford. Um, here you have um, Viola Parker and Earl Parker behind her. Um, one, two, three, four men, all killed, first wave, Omaha Beach. Um, Betty told me that um, this photograph was taken with a Kodak, Brony, Kodak Brownie camera. I'm sure there are some people in the audience that remember using one of those. Um, and she heard from John that the boys were about to move out. They were about to be shipped to England. Um, and she gathered some of her friends, including Viola, who was a very good friend of hers. They worked at the Belvin Hemingway Mill in Bedford during the war together. And she heard that their boys were about to, to ship out, and they all jumped onto a train, went down to Florida, and spent a few last, as it turned out, very poignant hours with their, their loved ones. So this is taken with uh, Betty's camera. Um, she saw a GI walking by and said, could you take a photograph of us? And he took the, uh, took the photograph. And I think it's, a, it's so beautiful because it's, you know, when I romanticized the 1940s, hugely, and I think for good reason. And look at these beautiful women, the dresses, the, this is a, um, it's very, very evocative and romantic and tragic. Um, they got into the Packard um, just behind them, uh, the, all the, the girls did, and then they drove back in tears to Bedford later that evening, having watched their men march off into, literally into a sunset. And Betty told me that, um, they cried as they walked away. They were, or rather, marched away. And not one of their men looked over to them. They were all ordered to look straight ahead. Um, the Stevens twins, uh, Roy over here and Ray, um, identical twins, shared everything during World War II. On the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, for the first time, um, they were asked to do something uh, separately. They were not allowed to join the same landing craft. Um, they'd shared everything, literally, since they were kids. They even dated the same set of sisters in Bedford at one point. And uh, Roy was in uh, LCA 102, and Ray here was in a separate landing craft. Um, at about 4 a.m. on June 6th, 1944, Ray came over to Roy and said, uh, I want to shake your hand. And uh, 
Roy knew that Ray uh, had very little um, confidence that he would come back alive. He had plenty of courage, but he felt doomed. In fact, before they'd left the States to go to England, Ray had expressed a great deal of anxiety about his future. At 4 a.m. that morning, they met each other on the pitching deck of a, uh, of a ship out in the English Channel. And Ray said to Roy, I want to shake your hand. This, this is going to be the last time. And Roy said, I won't shake your hand. You're not going to die. You'll make it across Omaha Beach. And we'll meet at a crossroads in a village called Vierville-sur-Mer, above Dog Green on Omaha Beach, later on this morning. You'll make it. Believe me, brother, you'll make it. Roy's landing craft was sunk a mile off Omaha Beach. He was fished out of the water by the limes, taken back to England. He landed on Omaha Beach, didn't even get his feet wet three days later. Ray was one of 19 Bedford boys killed in the first wave on <coughs> Omaha Beach. Um, the 29th Division arrived in England in October 1942. They crossed the Atlantic on the Queen Mary. And uh, for most of 1943, they were the, the 29th Division was the only infantry division, entire infantry division, based in England that could provide for that country's defence. Uh, and because they were in England for so long, longer than any other American unit in World War II, from October 1942, literally to June the 4th, 1944, we, the English, nicknamed them England's Own. Um, there were lots of love affairs. Lo a lot of these guys fell in love with English girls. Um, they became very uh, wedded to my uh, country of birth um, and are still fondly remembered in some of the villages where they were based. In fact, in Ivy Bridge, which was the ba their last base in England before leaving for France, um, there's a landlady in the Ivy Bridge pub who still, believe it or not, remembers some of these Bedford boys. She's a very old landlady, but she, <laughs> she obviously didn't drink too much of the, um, the fine affair, but um, the, the memory's still there. There are still memorials in uh, this small English village in Devon to the Bedford boys. Um, they commemorate uh, these guys every year. Um, extraordinary uh, four young men, fantastic baseball players, um, all four from Bedford, Virginia. Uh, th uh, three of them were killed on Omaha Beach. Uh, the tall guy here, um, most years I uh, am able to go to his grave above Omaha Beach and with uh, uh, parties from the National World War II Museum. And we often put a, um, a rose and a flag on his grave. Elmer Wright here was from Bedford. He was a fantastic, really, really exceptionally talented pitcher and uh, had been offered uh, a, uh, a place in the major leagues after the war. Um, he pitched for a team called the 116 Yankees and these four belonged to the 116 Yankees, all from Bedford. Um, and uh, the 116 Yankees won what was called the ETO World Series, European Theatre Operations World Series in baseball. Uh, it was sort of a, for servicemen overseas in Europe. Um, it was their equivalent of the World Series. And in uh, April of 1944, uh, these guys belonged to the winning team.
Um, the sausages, that's what the containment camps were called in uh, May of 1944. Um, of the 150,000 Americans who were involved uh, on D-Day, um, almost all of them were placed in sausages, containment camps, and sealed off from the outside world for around about three to four weeks. Uh, this is, this picture uh, shows you four of the five officers from Company A. There were five men who led those um, working class kids, basically, average age, 20, 21, into combat on Omaha Beach. Oops. Over here, we have uh, Master Sergeant John Wilkes. Uh, you remember him from earlier on. And here we have Ray Nance, uh, First Lieutenant Ray Nance. Um, and uh, all four of them landed on Omaha Beach. Uh, two of them were, were killed. Uh, a very rare photograph. I was very lucky to be sent this by someone in England, actually. And this is uh, early on the morning of June the 4th, 1944, as Company A, right here, 34 of these men you're looking at from Bedford, Virginia, um, as they march through Ivy Bridge towards uh, Weymouth, where they will board um, a boat to take them across the English Channel. Um, so that's the last photograph taken, last known photograph taken of the Bedford boys as they march to meet their fate. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful photograph. It's the best shot you'll ever find of what it was like to be in one of those landing craft, uh, pitching around in uh, seas of up to eight to 10 feet, uh, having barely slept, um, vomiting, uh, scared, witless, and uh, most of these guys knowing that they stood a very good chance of, uh, of being killed. This is actually just off uh, Easy Red. Uh, it's the first division, not the 29th. Um, two divisions, uh, American divisions, landed on Omaha Beach. The first, the big red one, and then the 29th. And uh, this is a, in a landing craft, obviously, taken by a, uh, a coastal Coast Guard photographer. And it shows elements of the first division nearing the landing, uh, the, the beach itself. So a very, very powerful shot. Um, I'm jumping forward now. Um, what I'd like to, you to understand or try and imagine is how back in 1944, the first news that you would have received of your loved one uh, who knew was involved in the invasion, the first hard news you would have received of their fate would have been around two weeks after D-Day. In fact, Robert Kappa, the life photographer, Life magazine published his photographs on the 23rd of June, 1944. And these were the first images that any American could see of what it was like on D-Day. Elizabeth Tees, this lady here, sadly she passed away three years ago, worked at the Western Union Telegram office in Bedford. And uh, she was 21 years old. Um, fastidious, uh, very proud of her accuracy um, in receiving telegrams, and it was her job to take a telegram, cut it up, and then very carefully paste it onto a piece of paper and make sure that the telegram was dispatched to 
various people in the Bedford community. And on the morning of the 21st of July, 6th of June, 21st of July, she went to work as she did every day. And around 10 o'clock in the morning, she turned on the teletype machine at the back of a coffee shop in Bedford, Virginia. And the first words she saw were, go ahead, Bedford. She replied to the Roanoke Central Office, this is Bedford. And then the message that came back was, we have casualties. She told me on the 21st of July, from 10 o'clock in the morning to around about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, give or take a few minutes, she received seven telegrams announcing the death of a Bedford boy. And all of them she knew from high school. She knew them very well. And uh, she told me when I interviewed her that um, she remembered one thing, much to this until recently, she remembered one thing about those names, and, that, and she said to me, there were a lot of Johns. Um, it was her job to um, take the telegrams. She said he was uh, very, very um, upset, very moved by this. And um, she watched the, the teletype machine tap out telegram after telegram after telegram. And she said to herself, when are they going to stop? And they didn't stop. And the machine would stop for maybe a minute or two and then would start again. So name after name came out of the teletype machine. And she was so focused on accurately cutting up the strips of ticker tape and then pasting them accurately and finding someone that she could trust to take these telegrams to the families in Bedford. Um, she, um, she was able to talk to the local taxi driver who volunteered to take some of the telegrams to the families. Um, this is Lucille Hoback Borges, um, a wonderful, gorgeous, gracious lady. Um, she's still alive. These are her two, two older brothers. She was 14 on, uh, on D-Day. Um, here's uh, Bedford, who you may remember from an earlier photograph, who was engaged to Elaine Kofi. They were kneeling at the front of that evocative black and white photograph I showed earlier. And uh, here's Bedford Hoback. Um, both were killed the first wave, Omaha Beach, um, on the bloodiest sands in, uh, that any American has landed on in history. Dog Green sector, one of eight, around about 180 men from Company A landed on that sector. 112 were killed. By 7 o'clock in the morning, they landed at 6.30, 2 a.m. By 7 o'clock in the morning, there were barely anybody was able to even stand, let alone fight. Um, she told me that uh, her parents received a telegram on the 21st of July. Um, Elizabeth Tees had made sure it was pasted beautifully. And uh, she said she'd never seen her father cry, but that day he walked out to a barn on a farm they lived on uh, just outside Bedford, and he went into the barn to be alone so he could cry on his own. Um, on the 23rd of July, a uh, uh, Sunday morning, um, she and her parents uh, were preparing to go to uh, church, and suddenly, the taxi driver turned up again 
walked along the path to their front door with yet another telegram for her other older brother. Um, two, two brothers killed. Her parents found out two or three days apart. And uh, she told me that it, it, um, it destroyed her parents. Uh, they were never the same again. And uh, her entire childhood was spent living in the shadow of that loss. Um, a wonderful, wonderful lady. And she spent a lot of her of her life in the last 20 years uh, raising money for the National Dina Memorial, giving talks to high schools. I appeared with her um, in 2003 at the Smithsonian Museum. I was able to sit beside her and she told the story of, of uh, her brothers and just how much uh, they had meant to her and how much that loss had impacted her. Um, remarkably, um, in late July, about a week after um, the, the tragic news arrived in Bedford, um, a package arrived from the European theatre, from Normandy. And um, it was Raymond Hoback's Bible. Now, those of you who've seen Saving Private Ryan, you'll know, you'll perhaps remember a scene where there's a Bible um, that's been washed ashore that's on the, on the, uh, the high water line on Omaha Beach. Um, that part of Saving Private Ryan is taken from this true story. Um, this is Raymond's Bible. And um, I won't read you the letter, but a, pr a private had been walking along Omaha Beach and had discovered this Bible, had opened it, and then sent it to the address given in the front to um, Lucille's parents. <coughs> and he, it was a very simple message, a very powerful message. And he said, you know, I. I thought that you folks would appreciate receiving this. Uh, everyone I know lost something or someone on D-Day, but perhaps you'll treasure this. And Lucille told me that her mother put this Bible on top of the television in the, in the parlor or the living room, and it stayed there for the rest of her mother's life. No one was allowed to touch it. It was the only thing she had um, from her two sons to remind her of what she'd lost. And in fact, I, had a, I made a terrible mistake by naming the book proposal, my original book proposal for the Bedford Boys, by a really awful title. I love it, but it was awful. Um, and the title was, Where Are My Boys? And uh, that's what Lucille's mother would wake up screaming 30, 40 years later, Where Are My Boys? Um, Anyway, I took this photograph of the Bible. Um, those are Lucille's beautiful fingers there. It's taken, I took this about three years ago. Um, we were making a PBS documentary about D-Day, and um, uh, it's something that Lucille still treasures uh, to this very day. Um, uh, Evelyn Schenk, she lost her husband on, uh, on D-Day, um, one of four widows from... Bedford, and she was a school teacher, and she told me that um, she really struggled terribly with depression and grief, um, but she was lifted by one thing, and that was the fact that she had a job, and she had to go back to school in September of 1944, and uh, one of her pupils had uh, learned that she'd lost her husband, um, and this is, 
I, I'll give you a prize if you can read that handwriting. <laughs> when I sign books later on, you'll realize that that's actually really very good handwriting. Um, <laughs> and I'm not joking. Um, she told me that, um, this is what she told me, she said, they, uh, my pupils gave me the will to go on. And this, this is a letter from a young man called Booker Goggin. Um, and it reads, uh, I think he was in second grade. Um, Dear Mrs. Schenk, I am sorry to hear about your husband. I wish I could come to see you. Please come and see me. I hope, I really hope you will be my teacher next fall with Love Booker. So she received this uh, before she went back to work and it, she told me um, that it was something that inspired her and made her realize that she should carry on and um, she had to look after, look after her pupils. And she told me they, they gave her the will to, to carry on. Um, you remember, I keep saying, referencing the, the photograph I showed you, the, the most beautiful photograph from World War II. And you remember there was a Viola Parker on the far, far left who was um, married to Danny Parker. Uh, this is, uh, um, sorry, uh, Viola was married to Earl Parker and this is Danny Parker. And Danny was born in 1943. She never got to meet her father. Um, uh, Earl shipped out um, before, obviously before she was born. She's still alive. I, I, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time with her. And uh, she's the only child of a Bedford boy who was killed on, on Omaha Beach. Only one of the Bedford boys had a child, and uh, she was that child. And this is her at the memorial in front of the courthouse in downtown Bedford. And this memorial was unveiled on June the 6th, 1954. And her father's name is on the plaque here. 22 Bedford men died in the Normandy campaign. And um, she's in her Girl Guide uniform here. And uh, if you go to the really very, uh, very powerful um, uh, holy place, um, the graveyard above Omaha Beach, where there were 9,350-odd Americans um, lying at peace, at rest. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that there's a wall of the missing with around 1,500 names on it. And her, her father's name is on the wall of the missing. Uh, two of the 22 men who died in, Norman, in the Normandy campaign, their bodies were never found. And. Uh, Danny told me that um, in the 1970s, suddenly her mother, uh, Viola, who never really recovered from the, uh, the death of her father, she drank very heavily. Uh, I believe that she probably died earlier than she should have because she drank so heavily. Um, in the 1970s, her mother received a, a letter out of the blue, and in the letter were Earl's dog tags. And, um, this, this became a memento that is still very prized, like the Bible in, in her family. And it's a complete mystery as to where the dog, fag, dog tags were found and, and how they reached her. Um, uh, one, of the two, one of the two brothers, four sets of brothers. This is uh, Roy Stevens. 
returning for the first time to the very spot, Dog Green uh, Sector, Omaha Beach, where his brother landed with the rest of the Bedford boys. And this is taken on June the 6th, 1994, uh, on Omaha Beach. And this is Roy here, um, at the center here. Um, notice the, the blue and the gray here, the symbol here. Um, Roy was the most important source for my book. Um, if you look in the notes section, you'll see interview with Roy Stevens, interview with Roy Stevens, etc., etc. And uh, he went back in 94, and he was determined to go back to where his brother had died. He was determined to pay um, his respects to his, um, literally, his other brothers that had served that day. Um, Roy had landed three days after June the 6th on uh, D plus 3, 9th of June didn't get his feet wet, walked along the beach with a friend of his, um, a guy called Clyde Powers, and they saw Germans with wheelbarrows. And the Germans had dead Americans in the wheelbarrows, and they were wheeling these dead Americans up to a makeshift graveyard, um, the first graveyard above Omaha Beach. The one that you go to today is about half a mile further to the east. And Roy told me that there was, it was, there were rows of wooden crosses, um, mounds of earth, and dog tags were hanging from each cross. And he hoped and prayed that he wouldn't find what he feared he might find. And he and uh, his best buddy, Clyde Powers, walked along the rows. They were alphabetized, they were in alphabetical order, excuse my English. And he went to the row beginning with S. And this is a true story, it's true. And he went to the row beginning with S, and he looked at the dog tag, and it was his brother, Ray Stevens. Clyde Powers, his best buddy, walked through the graveyard, and he found his brother's dog tags. They spent most of the afternoon on the 9th of June walking around the graveyard, and they found 16 dog tags from guys in Company A that they had boarded landing craft with in the early hours of June the 6th, D-Day. Roy walked across those deadly sands. Um, I went there with my wife for the first time. I've been many times, but my, my wife went with me for the first time three years ago. And when we stepped down onto the sands, I, she said, I, she told me, I, I'm shivering. She felt something. And whenever I go back, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, I'm, I'm trying to be an atheist as I get older, I'm less and less sure that I should be. Um, <laughs> but I have never felt the presence of spirits in the way that I feel them on that beach. Perhaps it's because I know what really happened there. Perhaps that influences me. But I, I'm very aware of the huge amount of death that occurred there, the lives that were lost. Um, and I think a lot of people who go there are touched by that in some way, certainly in the graveyard. He walked across the, uh, the sands of Omaha Beach, um, then walked up a, an exit, the D1 exit, um, to the, what's called the, also called the Vierville Draw, leading up to Vierville-Sumer, the village where he had planned to meet his twin brother. Uh, it's now called Avenue de Bedford. The French have appropriately named that one exit, one of seven exits from Omaha Beach, the most critical exit, most important exit, uh, leading from 
the most, uh, the most critical sector on that, that beach. And he walked up to the crossroads where he was supposed to meet his brother, and he told me I put my hand up in the air as if he might be there still somewhere in heaven for me to shake his hand. Um, he died seven years ago, a wonderful, wonderful guy, and uh, every time I returned to Bedford, my book was published in 2003, and for several years I would go back to, I went back to Bedford on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, I was back there this year, and um, he, he would always be there, and I would always chat with him. He spent most days um, taking school parties around the National D-Day Memorial, um, utterly, utterly driven by the... Um, the uh, desire uh, to, to let other generations, new generations, know what, what had been sacrificed there. Um, and I, some people say that these words I'm about to utter now are a cliché, uh, but they're not. And it takes people like this gentleman and the veterans we have here today to remind us that, as Roy said, freedom is not free. But it wasn't... Americans' freedom, it wasn't your freedom that was at stake when they sacrificed so much. It was my freedom. I'm a European. It was the Europeans that were set free and liberated. I think often that's forgotten. In 1944, in June 1944, there was no way that any Nazi stormtrooper was going to frog march down the mall in Washington. But for Europeans, the arrival of Americans promised freedom, a restoration of democracy, and the end of the Holocaust, the end of unimaginable oppression for millions. Here's Roy, uh, shortly before he died. This is Helen, um, his wife. They met uh, shortly after the war. Um, had a many, many lovely times with these guys. They also joined me at the Smithsonian in 2003 when the, the book was published. Um, and here's a, an image of uh, Ray Nance. Um, he was one of the officers that, from Bedford who landed on D-Day. Um, he had a terrible time. Uh, he, half of his heel was shot off. And uh, he was the only... I'll put it this way. At... 3.30 a.m. when he woke up in the middle of the English Channel, he woke up next to four other officers, five in all. And he was the only guy still alive at the end of D-Day, June the 6th, 1944. Um, he landed, obviously, leading his men out of a, uh, an LCA. Most of them were killed as soon as the ramp came down by machine gun fire, MG-42 machine gun fire, 1,500 rounds per minute. Um, at least 12 MG-42 machine guns were pointed at where the Bedford boys landed. That's 12 machine guns firing 1,500 rounds per minute. It was a miracle, he told me, that anybody got across that beach. But he did. Um, and the way that he avoided being shot by a sniper and by several machine gunners was that he hid in a tidal pool. He ducked into a tidal pool kept his head underwater, and then put his head back up, gasped for air, and then went back down. And he did that for about an hour and a half. He didn't, he didn't remember exactly how long, but that's how he stayed alive. And he said, I can remember to this day when I was crawling across the beach, when his heel had been shut off, crawling as fast as he could towards this tidal pool, 
that the machine gunners had seen me. And they said, I'll always remember seeing the bullets stitch the sand as they came towards me. He was a great soldier, really good officer, and he remembered that he taught his men that when the bullets come towards you, you make your body into a narrower target. So he actually turned and faced head-on towards the bullets, and they came zipping this way and zipping that way. And the machine gunner played cat and mouse with him for about half an hour. Didn't hit him, moved on to another Bedford boy or another member of Company A. By 7.30 a.m., when he reached the first protection that you had on 600 yards of flat sand, it hadn't been shelled, there was nowhere to run to. If you went back into the water, you'd be shot and killed. The only way you could go was forward. By the time you got to the first protection, which was a seawall, it was around about 7.30 a.m. And he was the only officer that he could see around him from Company A that was still alive. Um, he told me that he lay on the, uh, the pebbles, the stones below the seawall, and he was, uh, was bleeding heavily. And he said that I knew there was a God that one time in my life when I was certain that the Lord existed was when I looked up into the sky and I thought, I'm dying, I'm dying. And the sky lightened and he said that he was convinced that that was a sign from God that he should not give up, that he should carry on fighting to stay alive, that there was somebody looking after him. And around 20, 30, 40 minutes, who knows, later, a medic from Company A, a guy called Cecil Breeden, came over and bandaged him and gave him first aid, and he survived. He was taken off the beach on the 7th of June, brought back to uh, England, spent six months in hospital, and then went back to Bedford, Virginia, and incredibly became a postman after the war. <laughs> and he told me that it was hard sometimes to deliver mail to the homes of families who had lost men. And in fact, one day someone came up to him and said, why are you here? My son's dead. You were their officer. How can you show your face? How can you deliver mail to me when you commanded, when you were responsible for my son's life? Um, the only, he lived in Bedford for the rest of his life, uh, retired as a mailman and delivered the mail to families who'd lost the most precious thing for the rest of his, rest of his days. Passed away... He was the last Bedford boy alive who'd actually landed on Omaha Beach and fought there. And he died um, in 2007, I believe. And to show you how unbiased the New York Times can be sometimes, <coughs> the New York Times actually wrote an obituary about him. Um, and uh, this photograph was taken, uh, I believe, around about two months ago. Uh, and it's of Alan Huddleston. And Alan Huddleston was the last living Bedford boy. Um, there are no more men alive who belonged to Company A from Bedford, um, who trained and went overseas uh, with Company A. This is taken in Bedford, and he died three weeks ago. Um, his story was that he was training in the, one of the containment camps, the Sausages, and about three weeks before D-Day, he was injured in an accident, in a training accident. He twisted his ankle badly, 
and therefore was in, was, uh, wasn't able to partake in the invasion. They said that was the luckiest day of his life when he was injured in training before D-Day. He did, however, uh, end up uh, fighting, um, landed in Normandy in late June of 1944 and fought all the way through the Normandy campaign. Um, a very, very bloody campaign indeed. Um, so I um, would like to finish by saying that um, thank you, first of all, for being a wonderful audience. But I think I would like to um, pause by uh, reading maybe a, just a, a couple of lines from the, the end of my book. And I really wanted my book to be a memorial, uh, not just a narrative, but I, I intended it to be a memorial to not just men who gave everything so that I could grow up as a European in freedom, um, but also a community that gave everything. The, the chatter of the machine guns that killed those men was repeated by the chatter of the teletype machine back in that small town in Virginia, a typical town in rural Virginia. Um, and although we should be inspired by their heroism and their courage and their sacrifice, I think it's important to also remember that these men had lives that they never, had, they never got to live. If you count up the number of years that those 9,384 Americans didn't get to live who are below, below beautiful white marble graves, all of them pointing west towards home, it's phenomenal. The years that were lost of lives that were never lived. Um, Eleven of Bedford Boy's sons still lie in, those, in that graveyard uh, overlooking Omaha Beach. Beside 9,386, this is the exact number, American dead from the Battle of Normandy. In the chapel at the heart of the rows of dead, each with a cross pointing towards home, the following words are inscribed for all to see. Think not only upon their passing. Remember the glory of their spirit. Thank you very much. Sorry, yes. A very gripping, uh, emotional story. <laughs> Thank you. You spoke of uh, <clears throat> the last officer, Ms., uh, Officer Nance, and the reaction that some folks had to him. Uh, ordinarily or often, combat veterans uh, are not inclined to talk about what they've seen and experienced. When the survivors came back, I'm sure they were surrounded by family members wanting to know what happened. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the ones who returned and some of the things that they may have experienced? Um, yeah, um, I, remember, I mentioned the, um, Roy Stevens visiting the graveyard with a guy called Clyde Powers. Um, Clyde Powers had a brother called Jack Powers, um, and Jack Powers was killed on Omaha Beach. And I interviewed the Powers brothers' sister, uh, who was a nurse 
during the summer of 1944 at Virginia Beach. And um, she told me that um, one day in uh, the spring of 1945, um, Clyde Powers turned up unannounced at, at the hospital. And he walked down the corridor trying to find his sister. And uh, she was stunned by this, surprised by it. Um, she'd been wanting to see him, obviously knew that her bro other brother had been killed, uh, but didn't know that he was coming home. And he walked over to her. She was literally nursing a, a GI in a ward. And he said, I I I'm here. I need to be with you. I can't face going home on my own. And she went over to the sister working there and said, I need to have a couple of days off. They left and then they went home together and they walked to that front door together, brother and sister, because he couldn't bear to see his parents. Um, so yes, um, there was enormous, uh, unimaginable. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about war and you talk about this, um, the reality of war, the, the truth of war, you're really talking about trauma, um, enormous trauma. Um, and that community um, experienced the reality of war coming home more than any other community in the United States per capita in World War II. They lost per capita more men than any other community within the Allied nations. No other nation involved on D-Day lost as many per capita as, as Bedford. Um, um, a broader point, and I won't go on too long, um, I wrote a book called The Liberator about the um, 157th Infantry Regiment of the 45th Infantry Division, the Thunderbird Division. Um, the 3rd Division spent 635 days in combat in Europe. Um, I'll give you an example, a, a contrast. The famous band of brothers, the 101st Airborne, spent 117 days actually engaged in combat. The 3rd Division spent 635 days engaged in combat from North Africa all the way to Bavaria. Thunderbird Division, 511 days in combat. We often forget that D-Day comes a long, long time after Americans first got involved in the war in Europe. 10th of July, 1943, is when the first Americans start dying to liberate Europe. By the end of that ordeal, 138,000, almost all working-class Americans, were left behind there, never came home. Um, I interviewed a guy from the 45th Infantry Division that spent 511 days, he was a medic, and I couldn't believe that he hadn't been wounded, that he spent all 511 days in combat. Day one, Sicily, 10th of July, 1943. His last day in combat was the 7th of May, 1940, 1945, when the war ended in Europe. He was at, the, at present Sicily, Italy, south of France, Germany, and liberated Dachau. And I said to him, why did you guys, because I've been to many um, reunions, and it's a question that you guys probably ask a lot, you know, why did World War II veterans not talk about this with other people, certainly their families? And he told me, well, you know, imagine being in the worst car crash of your life every day for 511 days. Would you want to talk about that? And would you want to talk about that with the thing, the, the people that you held so precious and pure, 
that the last thing you wanted to do when you were broken and brutalized and damaged permanently psychologically by 511 days of war is to come back to a small community in Virginia, for example, and then poison the things that you dreamed of for so long. You wanted to keep that pure. You didn't want to afflict them with the horror that you wanted to forget. So I think it's only later on, you know, when um, veterans got into their 70s and they started going to reunions and they felt they were in a safe space, they could drink together, booze loosened them up, and they were able to start to finally talk, first with their comrades, and then that started to seep out, and then they, if you were lucky, maybe they, they would talk to you if you were a kid. But many, many children that I've met at reunions say that my dad never told me anything. He never said, said a word, I never knew what he was, what he was involved in, you know? And I, and I would say sometimes to them glibly, well, perhaps that's a good thing. You know, perhaps you didn't want to, when you were a 16-year-old girl, want to know what your dad did for 511 days. You know, it probably wouldn't have been something that you'd make you sleep well at night. So anyway, I, I hope I've tried to answer your question. You had said the, uh, you know, so D-Day was June the 6th. And it was like July 20th or something like that when the name started coming in. So it's, you know, 45 days. Obviously, people knew that there were heavy casualties and they were getting reports about it. Did, did anybody say anything about, you know, maybe the anxiety they'd had in that 45 days and that maybe this was anticipated or any, anything along those lines? Yeah, um, Helen Stevens, who uh, married Roy Stevens, they met after the war. She, was, she worked in a, um, a textile factory in Bedford. Um, there was a, a rubber tex plant and two other textile factories. And one of the textile factories made the silk parachutes that the 101st Airborne used on, on D-Day. Um, and um, she said, that, said it was like waiting for an earthquake. They knew something terrible had happened. Um, snippets of news came back, rumors. Um, in fact, Betty Wilkes was walking down Main Street in Bedford um, in early July of 1944 when a fellow worker came over to her and said, have you heard that John's dead, her husband? She's like, what? And uh, she'd received a letter from someone in England saying that you know Company A got chewed up on Omaha Beach and all the guys in command got killed. It was, wasn't verified, um, but there were rumors. Um, so, you know, I was very, the women I interviewed, I was, very struck by one story um, that Betty told me again. And she said she was working in, in front of her sewing machine, stitching parachutes. And uh, it was a very hot day that in July 1944. I know you guys uh, are able to enjoy wonderful, humid summers. Um, I, live in, I live in New England where summer is 65 degrees, you know. Um, but they kept the doors open in this, this factory and there were probably two, 250 women sitting behind sewing machines. And the foreman, um, that morning of the 21st of July when the telegrams came in, um, the foreman was watched by everyone. And twice that morning, Betty told me, the foreman came in and walked over down the rows of women. And everybody, she said, was praying, not me. Don't, don't stop at my sewing machine, please. And it was just, you could hear a pin drop and then would walk over to a young lady. Um, in fact, Viola Parker, um, whose daughter was Danny, 
she was working in the same factory and Betty told me that she saw her, the foreman come over to her and, uh, you know, wailing, hysterics, she collapsed, had to be helped out. And then sadly it happened to Betty. The foreman came in and she said that there was a big entryway and she looked at it and saw this guy walking along and just prayed and prayed and prayed and it was her. So, um, enormous um, anxiety, enormous worry. Uh, um, incredible when you think about knowing that something terrible has happened and, and uh, waiting so long for the news to, to arrive. So yeah, they went through, I can't imagine what it'd be like to, let alone for the wives, but the parents. Um, I have a, an 18 year old son and uh, I, can, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to wait to find out whether my son was alive or dead, uh, knowing that there was a very good chance that uh, he'd been killed. I just can't imagine what that would be, that would be like. I don't mind answering lots of questions, by the way. You're a fantastic audience, but uh, um, anyway. This has been an incredible presentation. Thank you very much. Um, I, this question probably would have a long answer to it, so, you know, but. I'll keep it short. <laughs> please, please do, please do. I'll try to keep the question short, too. Um, I, I'm fortunate, I've read a couple of your books, uh, The Liberator and Escape from the Deep. Um, very good books, by the way. Oh, thank you. And, and this, presentation reminded me of, of something in those books that your, your level of research is is fantastic and so my question is how do you in a, in a short way how do you kind of go about the research for these books because they're so detailed and so personal um, well I mean I, I find myself in a um, odd situation which is that I'm sadly going to be out of a job soon you know um, and I say that because I said that because when I was um, 28, I came to this country, I married a beautiful American I met in London, and she persuaded me to come to your, your fair shores, and I've been very happy here ever since, mostly, and my son's an American. Um, very proud of the fact that my son's an American. He's born in Los Angeles. My, the words of my dad when I first talked about this to him were, was he swaddled in the stars and stripes? <laughs> and, uh, you can interpret that as you will. Um, but anyway, um, I'm a journalist by training, kind of by accident almost, but uh, I was always taught, uh, I always loved meeting people and interacting with them and sitting in their kitchen, like with Roy Stevens, I would sit in his kitchen and we would drink a lot, you know? I, we, we drank whiskey and moon, he made moonshine. He was a bootlegger in the 30s and... Um, I feel sorry for the people that had to transcribe the interviews I did with him because... Uh, but anyway, I, I, um, I was very lucky because um, I discovered um, a story that was... Uh, this is in the late 90s where people were still... A lot of people were still around. A lot, a lot of guys were in their late 70s, early 80s, and they were... It was at that point when Saving Private Ryan had come out and Steven Spielberg had done his wonderful work and Ambrose had popularised finally again World War II and uh, you know I was able to talk to people and they, w they wanted to talk and I think that I was very lucky in Bedford because I'm obviously a limey and I'm an outsider I'm not a northerner you know I didn't I'm not wearing dark blue well <laughs> dark blue but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> By the way, I find it incredible that the Monument Avenue has these fantastic monuments to you know these fantastic warriors. And anyway, um, <laughs> but going back to your question, I uh, the, what I have enjoyed most and what I'm saddest about now is that I was able to meet incredible people, amazing people, people that did. You know, people that landed on the first wave on Omaha Beach, Americans that fought in the Battle of Britain, the most decorated, 11 out of 18 guys for the most decorated US small unit for a act, single action in World War II, um, three guys from the, you know, the most uh, lethal US submarine in the Pacific. Um, I've met incredible, I often joke with my wife, and it's not that much of a joke anymore, but I said, that, you know, I, the America that I've experienced since I've been here in 94, I started writing about World War II, focusing on Americans in the late 90s. So out of, since then, my predominant experience of most Americans that I've got to know well that aren't friends or neighbors has been mostly, and I'll say it honestly, working class, mainly white Americans that fought in Europe to liberate the place I love really profoundly. I mean, I, I'm, I, I love Europe. I love this country, but I love Europe. I'm European, I'm proud of it. And these guys risked it all to, to, so that I could sit in a cafe in Paris when I was 16 and not be persecuted, not be in freedom. I mean, that's what it comes down to. So I, um, I've been blessed, I really have. And I'm sad because there are so few, so few left. And uh, I wish it wasn't the case, but um, you know, I'd like to carry on writing about these people and meeting them and telling their stories for the rest of my life, and sadly, it, it's not going to be possible. Um, I really feel uncomfortable about the idea that, um, that they are all, all of the people that fought in World War II that, that gave on the home front, the women that sewed the parachutes for the 101st Airborne, gave as much in some ways as many of the men who landed on Omaha Beach they certainly suffered as much emotionally. But of the 14 million Americans that were in uniform in World War II and the many more millions that gave everything and were united as a nation like never before in your history, I, um, I feel reluctant to call them the greatest generation. I think that I would like to think that my son's generation could do the same thing. But part of me doubts that a little bit, I don't know. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that I don't think we should lump them all together and say that they are just this, because The Greatest Generation is a book title. It was a Tom Brokaw book title. We should think beyond that, and we should think not just in terms of the greatest, but we should also really start to think before there were none of these amazing people with us, we should start to think about what they really did sacrifice, what they really did go through. We should think about the reality of their trauma and what they went through every single day in combat, and not romanticize it, and not use superlatives that don't go to the core of these stories, which is about human beings suffering enormously, but with such an amazing result at the end of it. Um, so yeah, um, I'm, I'm rambling now, but uh, <laughs> it's something I, you know, I care about, you know? Um, <laughs>